Welcome to Narratives at Night, your weekly walk through the wide world of true stories. Good evening. Before I begin tonight, uh, I would like to share a, a brief personal note. I I was not on last week. Uh, I had planned on doing a Memorial Day uh, episode to, to share some of the history of Memorial Day, but I, uh, I had this upper respiratory uh, some upper respiratory uh, congestion, and, and I was trying to deal with it. I was coughing and clearing my throat quite a bit, which is obviously not very appealing to listen to. So um, I had to, had, to, had to scrap the episode I'd planned on doing. Hopefully hopefully next year, if I'm still doing this podcast, then I can, uh, I can share that then. But it's kind of a week past Memorial Day, and, and uh, it's time to move on to something else. Okay, so... If you if you looked at the uh, title of, of this evening's episode, you probably noticed it said no smoking. Now, this episode is not it's not an uh, it's not an anti-smoking per se episode. I mean it it does get into uh, the dangers of smoking, but but it's really about more about the the history of of uh, cigarette marketing and how. Uh, how, how over time people discovered that cigarette smoking was not really, not really healthy. But early on, uh, most people didn't didn't uh, believe that because they were told that it, it was not unhealthy. And the the primary source of my information this evening is from an article from the December 1992 issue of American Heritage Magazine. the The title of the article is is Cigarette Century. And obviously, in 1992, we were still toward the end of the 20th century. So, cigarette century is referring to the 20th century. The article was written by Dr. John A. Meyer, and it's it's a pretty interesting article. But before I get to that, I would like to say that being a man in my in my 50s, I have I have lived for obviously more than half century, and I've I've seen more more things than than a lot of people. Um, obviously, I, I've talked to someone in their 70s and 80s or 90s. They they can share a lot more stories, but but I've I've seen I've seen my share of things. And something that was prevalent as I was growing up was 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 cigarettes, cigarette marketing, uh, advertising for cigarettes, um, and someone in someone in his or her 20s or or younger really. Unless they've just done, unless they've studied a lot of, of history or, or history of advertising, they have no idea how prevalent, how how much we were, we as as I mean, as in consumers, um, we're we're bombarded, we're 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 exposed to to the advertising uh, for for cigarettes in particular. And later they had ads for you know, smokeless tobacco and things like that. But but you know, cigarette advertising was everywhere. I remember as a child, as a young child, television commercials. And and I uh, I've talked to people much younger than I that will say, "Yeah, I remember when they had television commercials." Well, no, no, you know. 
that ended in 1971. Uh, th- as this, as the article I'm going to share uh, reminds, will remind you. But uh, t- yeah, television commercials for for cigarettes were were stopped in 1971. So most people do not remember those ads. They they may have seen them on YouTube or something, and and and, and somehow in their mind they think they remember them. But but you know, most people. Most people, unless they're uh, unless, unless they're my age or older, do not remember those ads. But uh, they were they were effective. Uh, they, you know, I, I vaguely remember uh, the Marlboro uh, Marlboro commercial. Uh, you know, this is Marlboro Country. A guy out on the range, you know, and, uh, you know, uh, herding cattle, and and he, he smokes Marlboros. Of course, you know, you had the famous Marlboro man that came out of all of that. But um, one that really stands out is uh, there was this. There was a young couple on a picnic. They were, you know, kind of uh, frolicking in the meadow or, or, or just enjoying themselves. And they would sing. Uh, I think the young lady would sing. Winston tastes good like a cigarette should. So, very effective. Uh, they kind of left impression. But what did not stop for for a very long time were uh, magazine advertisements and and huge billboards, huge billboards everywhere promoting. Cigarette smoking. I remember watching. I was I was enjoyed sports, watching sporting events. There were these huge billboards. Shea Stadium had a huge Marlboro ad, a huge a huge Marlboro billboard in the outfield. You know, sometimes someone hit a home run or, or hit a ball. If it wasn't a home run, it you know, hit deep into, into the outfield, and you and you would see the, the the huge Marlboro ad out there. They were they were everywhere. Um, roadsides, you saw them everywhere, obviously. And you think of the uh, of NASCAR, the the points leader every year, the 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 person who finishes first in the NASCAR standings for years and years. That was that was the winner of the Winston Cup, sponsored obviously by by Winston cigarettes. I think Winston is an RJR RJ Reynolds uh, brand, but they were everywhere. Some of the magazine ads that that stand out, of course they would they would they would try to appeal to a certain clientele. I remember. I remember Benson and Hedges magazine ads, and and they they seemed to try to appeal to to the rich, to the sophisticated. If you smoked Benson and Hedges cigarettes, that you know they they the cigarette looked different. It looked it it looked like it was constructed of some higher quality material. So they were they were promoting those. I, th- I think it says I think it says Park Avenue on the on the wrapper. Those famous Tarrington cigarette ads where you'd have someone with a black eye, and it would say, "I'd rather fight than switch." Very effective. Camel, of course, the famous I'd, I'd, I'd Walk a Mile for a Camel cigarette advertising campaign. And uh, I remember in the, uh, in the 1970s, I'm pretty sure it was Camel that also had this, had this campaign. And you'd see these ads in magazines where uh, the question was, can you, smot, can you spot the Camel smoker? And you would, there'd be all these... All these characters in this scene, they'd be dressed obviously differently, and they would they would represent certain people in the in, in the culture, or, or different or different occupations of just like a, a slice of society you would see. And then then there's the camel smoker. Now, when I was really young, I'd look at these ads, and I, and, and I would I'd be trying to figure out who is it, who's who's the person. But as I got older, I figured out well, obviously it's always the person that looks to be the the, the coolest and the best looking. You know, that's that's the one that's the camel smoker so obviously you know that's that's marketing 101 you're, you're trying to make your 
your product looked really appealing, and, and they did. I mean, it's I, I could I can understand why so many people who did not smoke started smoking or at least tried smoking because they made cigarettes cigarette smoking look so cool, so appealing. Years later, I learned that my understanding that they they were not allowed to show someone actually smoking in the ad. They they would have a cigarette in their hand. Individuals that they were uh, in the ad would would have cigarettes in their hands, but you usually did not see someone with a cigarette in his or her mouth. So, in looking at, at this particular story that I was referring to from December 1992 in American Heritage Magazine, it has several advertisements that accompany the article. And it reminds the article reminds us of, of for a long time, people started promoting, uh, when they were trying to sell their cigarettes, they were promoting the, the health benefits or, or, or how it could, could uh, how one cigarette was, was much healthier than another. For example, there's an, an advertisement from this article where uh, it states that 20,679 physicians say luckies are less irritating. And the, uh, it goes on to promote the reason that lucky, lucky, talking about lucky strike cigarettes, the reason that luckies are less irritating is it says that they are, they're toasted. It says it's, it's toasted, your throat protection against irritation, against cough. So smoking luckies are better for your throat because uh, they apparently are, are toasted in some manner. There's another advertisement where they are basically promoting the, uh, the health benefits of smoking. It's another Lucky Strikes commercial. Lucky Strikes were a very popular cigarette for, for a long time. And the gist of the ad is that it says, avoid that future shadow by refraining from overindulgence if you would maintain the modern figure of fashion. It's basically saying that if you smoke, especially if you smoke Luckies, that you're probably not going to gain as much weight you're not going to be tempted to, to do other things that would, would affect your, your looks and your figure. One of the more interesting ads that accompany this article is an advertisement for Camel cigarettes. And it promotes Camel cigarettes for Thanksgiving dinner. And it says basically that, uh, you know, the, the tagline at the bottom of the ad, the, the, the selling point is, for digestion's sake, Smoke camels, and they go through how um, they have different examples of when to smoke camels while you are enjoying your Thanksgiving meal. For example, it says, uh, I'm not going to read all of these, but one of these says, off to a good start with hot spiced tomato soup. And then, for digestion's sake, smoke a camel right after the soup. And, and they kind of do this as you go through the different courses of the meal. Uh, stop and have a camel. It's going to make your meal more enjoyable. It's going, to, it's, it's going to promote good digestion. So I guess instead of taking Tums or, or uh, Rolaids or, or something like that, you need to just smoke, smoke a cigarette as you're, as you're enjoying that huge Thanksgiving meal. Okay, as I share this article with you from, as I've said, December 1992, written by Dr. John A. Meyer, and again, the title of the article is Cigarette Century. As I share it, keep in mind that you know, this article is, is almost 30 years old. And a little of the information you might seem outdated, 
but, but most of it uh, still applies today. So with that in mind, I'm going to read almost the entire article to you. A few things I'll have to uh, probably leave out or, or have to adjust due to uh, you know, modern times, but for the most part, I'm going to read the entire article. One other thing I want to share before we start the article is there's a, a picture, photograph, on the first page of the article where it shows a Red Cross nurse distributing cigarettes to American troops in France in 1918. Obviously, that's when we were involved in World War I. But again, as I said a few moments ago, and as a lot of you probably know, cigarettes were, were not promoted uh, for a long time as being unhealthy. As a matter of fact, they were promoted as being healthy. And if you look at old movies, almost everybody smoked. It, it, was, just, it was just part of the culture. Okay, so the article. The patient at Barnes Hospital in St. Louis in 1919 might have wondered during his last days why all the physicians were so peculiarly interested in his case. When the man died, Dr. George Dock, chairman of the Department of Medicine, asked all third- and fourth-year medical students at the teaching hospital to observe the autopsy. The patient's disease had been so rare, he said, that most of them would never see it again. The disease was lung cancer. Dr. Alton Oxner, then one of the students, wrote years later, I did not see another case until 1936, 17 years later, when in a period of six months, I saw nine patients with cancer of the lung. Having been impressed with the extreme rarity of this condition 17 years previously, this represented an epidemic for which there had to be a cause. All the afflicted patients were men who smoked heavily and had smoked since World War I. I had the temerity, at that time, to postulate that the probable cause of this new epidemic was cigarette use. At the beginning of the 20th century, most smokers chose cigars. The cigarette was seen as somewhat effete and faintly subversive. Smoking was an almost wholly male custom. In 1904, a New York City policeman arrested a woman for smoking a cigarette in an automobile and told her, you can't do that on Fifth Avenue. Smoking by female school teachers was considered grounds for dismissal. At an official White House dinner in 1910, Baroness Rosen, wife of the Russian ambassador, asked President Taft for a cigarette. The embarrassed president had to send his military aide, Major Archie Butt, to find one. Finally, the band leader obliged. The commercial manufacture of cigarettes had been a cottage industry until 1881 when James A. Bonsack invented a cigarette-making machine. In 1883, James Buchanan Duke, who had inherited his father's tobacco business in Durham, North Carolina, bought two of Bonsack's machines. Within five years, Duke's company was selling nearly a billion cigarettes annually, far more than any other manufacturer. Until World War I, cigarette production in America remained stable. But after the United States entered the conflict in 1917, Duke's company and the National Cigarette Service Committee distributed millions of cigarettes free to the troops in France. And they became so powerful a morale factor that General Pershing himself demanded priority for their shipment to the front. The war began to fix the cigarette habit on the American people. 
Between 1910 and 1919, production increased by 633%, from fewer than $10 billion a year to nearly $70 billion. Contemporary literature reflected the change. O. Henry's carefully observed turn-of-the-century stories almost never mentioned cigarettes. But by the time of Ernest Hemingway's expatriates in The Sun Also Rises, published in 1926, men and women alike smoke constantly. It was the consequences of this growing habit that physicians began to notice in the 1930s. As the first cases of lung cancer began to appear, doctors struggled to find ways to cope with the disease. Surgery was the only effective treatment for major internal cancers, but at the beginning of the century, no method existed to maintain a patient's respiration under anesthesia when the chest was opened. So opening the chest almost always meant immediate death. The problem began to yield in 1904 when two German surgical investigators pioneered the use of enclosed chambers to maintain differential air pressure. One version enclosed the patient from the neck down, together with the surgical team, in a chamber with lower than normal atmospheric pressure. Since the patient was breathing higher pressure air from outside, his lung wouldn't collapse when his chest was opened. The other researcher simplified the design by reversing it. His apparatus put the patient's head in a pressurized chamber. The systems allowed the beginnings of modern chest surgery. Before long, the chambers were superseded by a tube passed into the windpipe. The first lobectomy for lung cancer, which is removal of a lobe of the lung, was accomplished in London in 1912. The right lung has three lobes. The left, smaller to make room for the heart, has two. The patient was a 44-year-old laborer with a chronic cough and pain in his right chest wall. The record does not say whether he was a smoker, but x-rays showed a rounded density at the base of the right lung, and the blood-tinged sputum he was coughing up contained malignant cells. His surgeon, Hugh Morriston Davies, removed the right lower lobe by a technique virtually identical to that used today. The patient did well at first, but without the hard-won experience of others to draw upon, Davies couldn't know that the chest cavity must be drained after the operation. The patient died from an infection eight days later. Davies' omission wasn't corrected until 1929, when Dr. Harold Brunn of San Francisco began draining the chest cavity through a rubber tube, applying intermittent gentle suction to evacuate all air and fluid. Brunn reported six lobectomies with only a single death. Only one of the six operations was for cancer. Four years later, the modern era in lung cancer treatment began. Early in 1933, James Lee Gilmore, a 49-year-old Pittsburgh obstetrician suffering from a persistent cough and fever, consulted a physician friend who arranged for a chest x-ray. It showed a small, rounded density in the left upper lobe. Dr. Gilmore went to Dr. Everts A. Graham, a pioneer in chest surgery at the Barnes Hospital in St. Louis. There, a biopsy showed the density to be a squamous cell carcinoma, a type of tumor now known to be almost invariably the result 
of long-time cigarette smoking. Dr. Graham advised Dr. Gilmore to have it surgically removed, believing he could take out the upper lobe of the lung and save the rest. During the operation, however, Dr. Graham discovered that to get out the tumor, he would have to remove the entire lung. No patient had ever survived that operation, but Graham felt he must proceed. As it turned out, Gilmore tolerated the operation well. At the time, perhaps, a half dozen patients in the world had survived lobectomy for lung cancer. But now, surgery for the disease became much more widely accepted. The surgeon and his patient remain close friends. Dr. Gilmore eventually returned to Pittsburgh and resumed his practice for another quarter century before he retired. Dr. Graham always regarded this operation as his greatest achievement, and lung cancer remained his leading interest. In 1950, Graham and a medical student named Ernst Winder published a landmark study of the disease in the Journal of the American Medical Association. They found that practically all the victims had been long-time heavy cigarette smokers. An association between lung cancer and smoking had already been suggested by a number of other researchers, and a 1932 paper in the American Journal of Cancer had accurately blamed the tars and cigarettes for the formation of cancer. But this was the first major study to make the connection. In 1953, it was followed by the Sloan Kettering Report in which researchers at the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York City announced that they had produced skin cancers in mice by painting the tars from tobacco smoke on their backs. Graham himself had been a cigarette smoker for more than 20 years, but he quit after his 1950 study and devoted himself after retirement in 1951 to research on the mechanisms of cancer production by tobacco tars. The remainder of the story is one of sad irony. In 1957, he was found to have lung cancer himself, of an especially malignant type called small cell carcinoma. Graham died that same year. His patient, Dr. Gilmore, survived him by more than half a decade. Long before the dangers of smoking became evident, cigarette companies were implying that it was actually beneficial. In 1927, the American Tobacco Company launched an advertising campaign claiming that 11,105 physicians endorsed Lucky Strikes as less irritating to sensitive or tender throats than any other cigarettes. Physicians' groups responded angrily, but they were more offended by the commercialization of professional opinion than by the specific claims involved. In 1946, the R.J. Reynolds Tobacco Company launched its campaign featuring the T-Zone test, taste and throat, with a claim that more doctors smoked camels than any other cigarette. Of course, many more doctors did smoke then than now, and camels were extremely popular. In 1949, Camel advertised its 30-day test with a group photograph of noted throat specialists who had found not one case of throat irritation due to smoking camels. By the early 1950s, however, as medical studies began demonstrating close links between cigarette smoking and ill health, the manufacturers stopped claiming that smoking was healthful and began instead to insist that no connection with disease had been proved. In the meantime, cases of, and deaths from, 
lung cancer among American men had begun a dizzying climb. In 1930, the death rate from lung cancer among men was less than 5 per 100,000 population per year. By 1950, it had quintupled to more than 20. Today, today and by today this means in 1992, it is above 70. The numbers of new cases and of deaths have never been very far apart. Even today, not quite 10% of all lung cancer patients can be cured. In 1989, there were an estimated 155,000 new cases of lung cancer in the United States and 142,000 deaths from the disease, making it far and away the leading cause of cancer deaths in our society. And cigarette smoking is responsible for an estimated 85% of the cases. The death rate still continues to rise, but there are definite signs that among men, its rate of increase is diminishing as more men give up smoking. Again, that's a 1992 statistic. The rise of lung cancer among women lagged behind that among men by about 30 years. Heavy smoking remained relatively unacceptable socially for women until around World War II. Today, or today is in 1992, women's lung cancer death rates are skyrocketing the way men's did 20 or 30 years earlier. A number of studies indicate that it may be harder for women to quit than for men, and it has been predicted that by the year 2000, more women than men will be dying of lung cancer. World War II, like World War I, gave cigarette smoking an enormous boost. Cigarettes were sold at military post exchanges and ships stores tax-free and virtually at cost, usually for a nickel a pack and they were distributed free in the forward areas and were packaged in K-rations. The 1950s were the golden age of cigarettes on television. Arthur Godfrey would sign off at the end of his Chesterfield-sponsored variety show saying, This is Arthur. Buy him by the carton, Godfrey. The message was dropped in 1959 when Godfrey himself was found to have lung cancer. He underwent removal of the lung followed by radiation therapy, made a remarkable recovery, and lived for 24 years afterward. When John Cameron Swayze anchored the Camel News Caravan in the early days of television, the sponsor required him to have a burning cigarette visible whenever he was on camera. Likewise, Edward R. Murrow was never seen on air without a cigarette. He died of lung cancer in 1965. But during the 1960s, the tide turned against cigarettes on TV. The change had begun in 1955 when Surgeon General Leroy E. Burney invited representatives of the National Cancer Institute, the National Heart Institute, the American Cancer Society, and the American Heart Association to establish a study group to assess the mounting evidence of links between cigarette smoking and lung cancer. The group concluded that a causal relationship did indeed exist, and late in 1959, Dr. Burney published an article in the Journal of the American Medical Association, stating the Public Health Service's position. Cigarette smoking caused cancer. The reports received little notice at the time, but as the 1960s got underway, agitation began to grow for the adoption of an official government position on smoking and health. In May 1962, an enterprising reporter pressured President John F. Kennedy on the subject at a press conference. The president plainly was caught off guard. The 
that matter is sensitive enough and the stock market is in sufficient difficulty without my giving you an answer which is not based on complete information, which I don't have, and therefore perhaps we could... I'd be glad to respond to that question in more detail next week. Not long afterward, Kennedy announced that he was assigning his Surgeon General, Dr. Luther Terry, the responsibility for a study of smoking and health. He assured Dr. Terry that he expected an expert scientific review and would allow no political interference. In July 1962, the Surgeon General and his staff met with representatives of various medical associations and volunteer organizations. The Food and Drug Administration, the Federal Trade Commission, the Departments of Agriculture and Commerce, the Federal Communications Commission, the President's Office of Science and Technology, and the industry-backed Tobacco Institute. The representatives were given a list of 150 eminent biomedical scientists, none of whom had taken a major public position on smoking. From this list, they were to propose a committee of 10 members and to strike any name to which they objected for any reason. All of the first 10 scientists contacted agreed to serve. Three were cigarette smokers. They began meeting in November 1962 and worked for 14 months before submitting their formal report, which was released at a press conference on January 11, 1964. Known ever after as the Surgeon General's Report, it indicted smoking as a major cause of lung cancer in men and as a contributing cause of many forms of chronic lung disease. After the report came out, the Federal Trade Commission issued the Trade Regulation Rules on Cigarette Labeling and Advertising, which, as of January 1, 1966, required that all cigarette packages carry a warning, caution, cigarette smoking, may be hazardous to your health. That cigarette advertising not be directed at people under 25 or at schools or colleges, and that no claims be made for the healthfulness of filters or cigarette products. The industry's Tobacco Institute protested the new rules. We respectfully submit that in these trade regulation rules, the commission is plainly legislating. Few could deny the substance of the allegation, but a tradition of delegated authority had long been emerging between Congress and its administrative agencies, so the legal question became one of the limits of that delegation. It has largely been resolved in favor of the agencies. The tobacco companies received a further blow in 1970 when, after two years of lobbying, the Federal Trade Commission persuaded Congress to pass the Public Health Cigarette Smoking Act. The bill had two main provisions. A stronger warning was to appear not only on cigarette packages, but in print advertisements as well. Warning, the Surgeon General has determined that cigarette smoking is dangerous to your health. And all cigarette advertising was to be banned from radio and television. This time, Congress itself issued the restrictive ruling. Challenged in the courts by the tobacco industry, the legislation was upheld by the Supreme Court in 1972. In 1984, the warning was made stronger again, establishing today's four alternating messages. Cigarette smoke contains carbon monoxide. Quitting smoking now greatly reduces serious risks to your health. Smoking by pregnant women may result in fetal injury, premature birth, and low birth weight. And smoking causes lung cancer, heart disease, emphysema, and may complicate pregnancy. 
In the summer of 1987, the first U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals in Boston ruled that these warnings on cigarette packages are sufficient to protect the tobacco companies against lawsuits claiming injury or death from smoking. The ruling dismissed the case of Palmer v. Liggett Group, filed in 1983, in seeking damages for $3 million for the death of Joseph C. Palmer from lung cancer in 1980. In the case of Cipollone v. Liggett Group, Laura Lard Incorporated and Philip Morris Incorporated concluded in New Jersey in 1988, the plaintiff herself was found 80% responsible for her illness and its course, and the Liggett Group 20% responsible. The verdict required Liggett to pay the plaintiff's family an award of $400,000. The jury concluded that Liggett had failed to warn of health risks and had misled the public with its advertising slogans prior to 1966, when the first warning label rule took effect. But the tobacco companies were exonerated of having conspired to misrepresent the dangers of smoking. The defense called the award an expression of sympathy by the jury. It was voided on appeal in January 1990 and then went to the United States Supreme Court. The Supreme Court ruled in June of this year, that is, the Supreme Court ruled in June of 1992, that warning labels did not preempt all damage suits and opened the way for a retrial of the Cipollone case. Moreover, by ruling that Congress had offered no sign that it wished to insulate cigarette manufacturers from long-standing rules governing fraud, the court threw the door wide open for future damage suits, alleging that tobacco companies concealed information about the dangers of smoking or otherwise deceived smokers. The biggest change in cigarettes themselves since the 1964 Surgeon General's report has been the proliferation of low-tar, low-nicotine filtered cigarettes. Filters were first added to cigarettes long before there was public concern about the dangers of smoking. Viceroy advertised them in 1939. At last, a cigarette that filters each puff clean. No more tobacco in mouth or teeth. After Winder and Graham's 1950 report and the 1953 Sloan Kettering report, filters came into progressively greater public demand, and by the 1960s, they had practically taken over the market. Unfortunately, the advantages of low-tar and low-nicotine light cigarettes have proven to be largely illusory for several reasons. First, while nicotine and tars can be reduced, carbon monoxide is a product of burning. And as long as cigarettes burn, they will produce it. Second, confirmed smokers tend to increase their cigarette consumption after switching to lighter brands. And third, Studies have found that the risk of heart attack increases with the number of cigarettes smoked per day and does not decline when milder ones replace full-strength brands. Cigarette manufacturers counter by pointing out that a precise chain of events leading from smoking to cancer has never been established and that no statistical study of smokers and cancer has been able to rule out every other possible variable. Factors such as diet, environment, and alcohol consumption. The industry continues to maintain that its product does not harm its user's health and that it provides pleasurable relaxation. This latter point, at least, is inarguable. Jean-Nico de Vima, a French ambassador to Lisbon in the late 16th century, is said to have sent seeds of the tobacco plant to Catherine de Medicis, Queen of France, around 1556. The product 
had been brought to Europe from the New World, first by Spanish and Portuguese explorers. But it was Nicote who presented it to Catherine, and who later achieved immortality when Linnaeus used his name to christen the plant the seeds came from, Nicotiana tobacco. Later, the active chemical alkaloid in its leaves was named nicotine. This is the primary addicting substance in tobacco, and it is readily absorbed into the bloodstream from tobacco smoke in the lungs or from smokeless tobacco in the mouth or nose. Once in the blood, nicotine is rapidly distributed to the brain, where it binds to chemical receptors located throughout the nervous system to quicken the heartbeat, raise the blood pressure, relax skeletal muscles, and affect nearly all the endocrine glands. In regular tobacco users, nicotine levels accumulate in the body during the day and persist at declining levels overnight. As a result, users maintain some degree of exposure to the drug practically around the clock. For decades, there have been organizations that try to help smokers quit, but successive Surgeon General's reports have found that most ex-smokers have quit spontaneously and on their own. A 1985 national survey estimated that of the 41 million Americans who quit smoking, 90% had done so without formal treatment programs or smoking cessation devices. Quitting requires motivation, an urgent reason for wanting to quit. Simply deciding that it's a good idea is not enough, and smoking will always retain a powerful attraction. Surely we don't smoke only because we are addicted. Smoking provides relaxation, mild euphoria, relief of tension, improvement in attention time, and concentration. World War II memoirs often recall the pleasure of enjoying a cigarette after a long period of intense stress, and many surgeons who once smoked still remember the relief they felt when lighting up after a long, difficult operation. To what extent such relief and relaxation represent the alleviation of short-term withdrawal symptoms, fatigue, anxiety, irritability, and the like, is at least partly a matter of definition. In normal daily life, smokers develop a habitual pattern of motor activity that is familiar and reassuring, an ever-present support, and a generally accepted way of reducing social tension. Surgical removal of the lung, or an appropriate part of it, remains the only real potential cure for lung cancer, and then only when the cancer has not yet begun to spread. Unfortunately, spreading cancer cells may be impossible to identify before the operation and afterward can give rise to recurrence or metastasis, the transmission of the disease to a new site. As a result, the surgeon can speak of having affected a cure only in terms of the passage of time. Lung cancer will generally recur within three years or less if it is to recur at all. Among all patients with a new diagnosis of lung cancer, not quite one in ten will live five years. The article concludes in this manner. Probably no other human affliction besides AIDS depends so completely on prevention. Having risen from obscurity in the 20th century, lung cancer remains the number one killer among all cancers. And despite all the sophisticated, high-technology methods of treatment, the chances for today's patient are really no different than they were for Dr. Gilmore 60 years ago. Okay, before closing out this episode, 
I would like to share some updated information with you. In 1998, 52 state and territory attorneys general signed the Master Settlement Agreement with the four largest tobacco companies in the United States to settle dozens of state lawsuits brought to recover billions of dollars in health care costs associated with treating smoking-related illnesses. And in 2006, the American Cancer Society and other plaintiffs won a major court case against the big tobacco companies. Judge Gladys Kessler found tobacco companies guilty of lying to the American public about the deadly effects of cigarettes and secondhand smoke. Today, tobacco companies are being required to run an extensive television and newspaper advertising campaign at their own expense, admitting the truth about their products. I would also like to share some information about lung cancer itself. First of all, from the American Cancer Society website, lung cancer incidence has been declining since the mid-1980s in men, but only since the mid-2000s in women because of gender differences and historical patterns of smoking uptake and cessation. Since the mid-2000s, incidence has decreased steadily by about 2% per year overall, but at a faster pace in men than in women. Lung cancer mortality has declined by 54% since 1990 in men and by 30% since 2002 in women due to reductions in smoking, with the pace accelerating in recent years. From 2014 to 2018, the rate decreased by more than 5% per year in men and 4% per year in women. Cigarette smoking is by far the most important risk factor for lung cancer with approximately 80% of lung cancer deaths in the United States still caused by smoking. Risk increases with both quantity and duration of smoking. Cigar and pipe smoking also increase risk. And finally, from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention website, lung cancer is the third most common cancer in the United States. Skin cancer is the most common form of cancer in the United States, followed by breast cancer among women and prostate cancer among men. More people in the United States die from lung cancer than any other type of cancer. This is true for both men and women. Episodes of this podcast will be made available every week on various platforms, including Google Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, Breaker, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, and Apple Podcasts. To comment about this episode or other episodes, or to hear more samples of my work, go to voiceswithmike.com. To email me directly, my address is mike at voiceswithmike.com. Have a great evening.